0: just turn to your neighbor and say, Merry Christmas. Christmas. And to your neighbors right behind you, Happy New Year. Year. I love this time, this season, your generosity. Thank you so much for just being generous during this season. I, I love the Christmas season because it's a sense of of something special in the air. People are just extra friendly. I go to Kohl's, and I visit little Miss Jennifer Lopez. And in between the jeans and her little sweaters, I get to meet people. And um, it's just fun to see people in the area, you know, in Trader Joe's, Target, just to see people even in the lines of Starbucks to see generosity elevated an extra notch. And so that makes me happy, not only because there's an essence of Christmas at Fellowship, but that God is doing something in our region. Amen? Amen. It's an exciting time. And so um, I know many of you are excited for the season as well. And uh, there's just a a feeling of like home during the season for me, and I'm sure that you're experiencing it as well. And home is not necessarily a location or destination or place. I think home for most of us is unfolding our hearts, unfolding our souls, our lives, in a way that we can let our hair down and just reveal ourselves in the presence of God, that he fully knows us and he's able to restore our soul. The Bible says that, um, why are you so downcast, oh my soul, put your hope in God. And so when we give room for God to look into our lives, he's able to restore those areas of where we are are fractured, where we feel lonely, where we feel like, you know what, I, I have this distant relationship, what better season than to unfold your life in a place that's home for us, which is in the presence of God, and so if you call Fellowship Church your home, I'm just glad that you're here, and if you're a first-time guest, I, I wish, and my, my prayer for you is that you begin to unfold your life here, and begin to build your life here where God begins to restore your soul. And so all of us in, in this place have started somewhere, and so I'm just glad that you're here. So um, just be friendly, and they'll and, and I promise we won't bite. We won't scare you. Um, we will come up maybe with a smile. Maybe, you know, we might be a little extra huggy, you know. It's okay. For you introverts, just step to the side and say thank you. And um, I'm an introvert, so I'm, I, I got you, okay? Um, so my whole heart is that we get to experience Christmas together. And so um, I just wanted to touch on, you know, just this time. I know many of us have nativity scenes. Do you have a nativity scene at home? I used to have a nativity scene. I used to have one, and my children got a hold of it, and it no longer is here. Um, it, it didn't survive, let's just put it that way. Um, I know many of you have it on your lawns. Maybe you're on your coffee table, maybe on your end tables or your buffet or the windowsill, but um, have you ever noticed the nativity scene? It's an unusual picture, and um, whenever you see it, it's almost like it's a bedazzled version of a family picture. And so you see Mary with a halo, Joseph silently, you know, quietly standing there, the angelic being there, um, wise men and shepherds, and um, it almost looks like a Christmas photo for all of us. And how many of you have taken Christmas photos? How about Christmas photos on another level? Little kids going crazy, you know, temper tantrums and you try to bribe them with chocolate and then all of a sudden, perfect picture. And as soon as the kids get older, you have older children now, they're able to stand there, smile, and it gives this this illusion of, you know, a perfect family. And so when I look at the nativity scene, I'm looking at, oh, look at this perfect family and... And then I noticed something, that it was a family picture in an unusual place. It was a family picture in a birthing room. My family picture never looked like that in a birthing room. So I'm going to share a story about one of my birthing experiences and give you a glimpse of the real deal behind my nativity scene, okay? Can we just be real? Say amen. Okay, it was a dark and stormy night. No, I'm kidding. When my husband and I got married, it was in 1998, and three months later, we conceived my daughter Hadassah, my eldest. And so we had all that time, nine months, okay, sis? nine months, where we contemplated, we talked about what parenting would look like, what we would like to teach our kids, education, yes or no, homeschool, you know, that kind of thing. And so we were trying to figure out for our family, you know, what parenting and, and, and having a family would look like. And so um, I remember, you know, talking to my doctor and she said, you know, um, Diana, it's, it would be great if you invested in birthing classes to prepare you for birth when you're about to give birth to your daughter. And I said, okay, you know, I'm going to talk with my husband and talk about investing in some classes because at that time you had to pay money to join a class in Kaiser and be a part of a group where you learned how to You know, do the breathing exercises, your spouse is behind you, coaching you. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to have this discussion with Pastor Sean. So I went home, talked to Pastor Sean. I looked at him. He looked at me. We started discussing this whole thing. And so he looked at me. I looked at him. And he said, oh, no, no, we're going to pocket the money. You know how to breathe. I know how to coach. We can do this. so um, on the day that hadassah was supposed to be born we were en route to mount diablo so we're in the car i got out of the car went into the wheelchair rolled into the elevator of mount diablo to go to maybe the second or third level of the birthing um, center of mount diablo hospital and so in in the wheelchair i rolled in and all of a sudden i shot out of my out of the wheelchair grabbed a hold of this railing inside the elevator. And all of a sudden I felt my first birthing pain. I was like, ooh, you know, that kind of hurt. And so I grabbed a hold of this bar and I looked at Sean and I looked at myself and he looked at me, I looked at him and I distinctly remember the conversation of, we're gonna pocket the money. I knew how to breathe, he knew how to coach. So as the doors opened on the level, they wheeled me into the triage area. They tried to lay me down in, on this bed, this gurney type of thing, apparatus. So I tried to lay down and the nurse checked and she said, Mrs. Nepstad, you're about a centimeter and a half. And I said, well, what, what does that mean? And she said, you know what? We're going to admit you and you're going to have a baby. And so I said, okay. And as soon as I said that, my waters broke. And it was like, A flood from Noah's time, okay? So I turned to the nurse and I said, I'm so sorry. I looked at my husband who didn't want to take birthing classes. And so I'm there and I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, something just woke up inside of my body. After that, my pain level was about a five when my waters broke and went to about a 10. And if I could describe the pain to you, it would be like, let's say this like a long needle right in the middle of your belly button and somebody doing this inside. (laughs) So my husband, who didn't want to take birthing classes, escorted me to the room. (laughs) Their nurse followed right behind me. I changed out of my clothes, put on my robe, And I was beginning to get into the bed, and I wasn't comfortable. They said, you know, why don't you take a shower? And so normally hot or warm showers will help with the pain and to relax the mother. And so I went in there. I went right back out. I said, you lie." And so... I tried to go up against the wall, trying to get a hold of the pain. I couldn't get a hold of the pain. I tried to lay in bed, and it was just too much to take. I tried to go sideways. I tried to go. I tried to sit down. I tried to fold my arms. I did whatever I could to alleviate the pain. And I found myself crying out to the Lord, Lord Jesus, Son of David, help me. And so I'm in the middle of this pain, trying to relax. My husband, who didn't want to take birthing classes, is walking across the room, pacing the floor, and in walks my mom. My mom walks in, leans over, sees me in bed, crying out to Jesus, and she says, "Dianita, you're a little loud, mija. And now, if I could take an aside, this is the same woman that, you know, gave birth to six children, separate births, with no medication, no pain reliever. And I said, you're not allowed to talk to me right now. And so I'm laying there in bed, my mom is trying to quiet me, my husband who didn't want to take birthing classes is walking and pacing the floor and in comes my mother-in-law with a black bag. And so she lays the black bag, hugs my mom, who's trying to quiet me, hugs my husband, who didn't want to take birthing classes, and out comes out of this piece of luggage. is this big black apparatus called a video camera. <laughs> and I turned to my husband, who didn't want to take birthing classes. I said, what is that? And he said, oh, that's a video camera. Now, I'm going to take another aside and, and explain to you, now, this is... My husband, Pastor Sean, your pastor, is the kind of guy who archives every moment. Now, he archives the children, you know, throwing up, spitting up, laughing, going to Disneyland, all kinds of moments, okay? Now, he wanted to record this moment of Hadassah giving, um, coming to this world and me giving birth. And I said, no, we're not gonna have that. So, in comes the scene. And so I told him, no, absolutely not. And he said, No, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. I will, I will let her know where, how to um, videotape this whole experience. So he's trying to give the angles. My husband, who didn't want to take birthing classes, my mother-in-law is the videographer of the day, holding the video camera. My mother, who is trying to quiet me down in bed, and here I am laying in bed, crying out to Jesus, son of David, and in comes the nurse. And so the nurse is standing right beside me. She looks at all the chaos, and she leans over and says, Mrs. Nepstad, is there anything I can do for you? I said, do you have any pain medication? And she said, yes. I have Demerol I said great bring in the Demerol so she brings in the Demerol she puts it in the IV and all of a sudden my pain level it just went in the opposite direction it just escalated even more they lied And so they said it was supposed to relax. It did not make me relax. And so I'm there crying out to Jesus with my mother quietly trying to quiet me down with my husband who never wanted to take birthing classes. And my mother-in-law who is videotaping the entire experience. I'm laying in bed and I said, I can't take this anymore. And so I have a whole entourage in my birthing room. And so all of this experience and the doctor comes in, starts snapping the gloves on, putting on the, his robe. And so the nurse comes in and says, Mrs. Nepstad, what can I do for you? And I said, please, I, I give up on hugging trees. I give up on my Birkenstocks. I give up on granola. I give up on everything. I forget the cloth diapers at home. Just give me the epidural right now. And so she looked at me, I looked at her, she looked at me again and she said, Mrs. Nepstad, it is too late. You cannot have an epidural. I said, I can't do this. I started to cry, crying out to Jesus. My mother-in-law is there uh, videotaping the entire experience, my husband who didn't want to take birthing classes. And there my mom is trying to quiet me down. And so she looked at me, I looked at her, she looked at me, I looked at her. The nurse said, Mrs. Nepstad, you suck it up right now. You're gonna do this thing. I looked at her and I said, you're right, I will. So we had this moment. I'm laying in bed, and out comes Hadassah in three to four pushes. And there I am, you know, just... Uh, relieved that the pain is over, relieved that the whole experience, my husband, who didn't want to take birthing classes, is relieved. My mother, the videographer, has finally put the videotape down. And finally, my mother is quietly holding and helping with the baby. And so the moral to this story is this. Husbands, you better invest that money into some birthing classes. None of this nonsense of, oh, we're going to pocket the money. You know how to breathe. I know how to coach. Nonsense. All of that to say is that is my nativity scene, my family photo in the birthing room. And if we can be real mothers in the room, say amen. Amen. There's nothing glamorous or bedazzled in that nativity scene, all right? And so if I could give you the real picture of what it looks like for, for Jesus on the night of his birth. You know, Mary was not looking cute, okay? She did not roll up to a Hilton, get into a hotel room and say, I'm going to just give birth to Jesus in this waiting pool and he's going to come out in the water and no, no, no no, that did not happen. She was on horseback, traveling across the, the whole land and region to go and have a census done and trying to find a room in some inn where all the rooms were taken. This was her night. And so if we're looking at this nativity scene, I want you to write down the first thing on your notes. It's God speaks. God is speaking you never probably never seen this part of the scriptures. And maybe this is your first introduction of reading the Bible. And maybe you've never heard the, the backstory of what was happening behind this nativity scene. But at the close of Malachi in the Old Testament, the opening of Matthew, there is this 400 years, this period of silence. People were living their lives just like today, you know, you know riots and, and, and race relations. All of that was happening even within the Jewish culture. Life was going on. People were at a climax of hostility. And so people were um, polarized on every side and every direction. And God was not speaking to one prophet, one person, one teacher, one preacher. There was silence. But don't underestimate God's voice. He's always working. Amen. As God is speaking, He's, I want you to just take note that He's speaking, especially through the book of Matthew and on through the Gospels through through two through two angelic figures, which is Michael and Gabriel. And these two angelic figures go and introduce, uh, introduce themselves to the first character, which is Zechariah. Zechariah was the priest. And normally what priests do, it, uh, what they do is they cast lots or they you know they choose whose family would be go, would be the first to go into the temple and do their priestly duties so it fell upon Zechariah now little did you know that Zechariah has a wife that was barren and Zechariah as he was doing his priestly duties he was saying his normal prayers lighting the incense lighting the candles breaking the showbread and out pops this huge gi- gigantic angel and he announces, do not be afraid because I will visit your wife Elizabeth who is barren and she will bear you a son and his name shall be called John. And John will be the preparer of the way for the Messiah who is the eternal king. And so Zechariah receives an invitation. Zechariah receives a declaration over his life. And in comes Mary, another, another obscure, you know, figure in this whole nativity story. You see, Mary was a young virgin who was getting prepared to be married. And so she was betrothed to this guy, this gentleman, Joseph. And so she's getting ready, and out comes an angel and appears before her and says, Do not be afraid. What's up with these angels saying, Do not be afraid? I'm going to be flabbergasted. Might wet my pants. Who knows? But the real story is this, is that the angel appears before Mary. And he says, do not be afraid. And he says, you have found favor in God's eyes. And Mary says, I've never known a man. And he says, no, it's not going to come through that kind of means. What you're going to have, it's going to be a supernatural birth. It's going to be unlike anything before or after. And you're going to conceive a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. There's another visitation, and it was to Joseph. Joseph was wrestling with Mary, having these physical changes He just didn't buy into the story of, you know, Mary being supernaturally pregnant. And so there was a visitation that happened even in his sleep. As he was sleeping, the angel appeared to Joseph and said, Joseph, don't be afraid to marry your your betrothed. You're going to marry her. You're going to marry Mary. And what she says is true. She's going to conceive a son, and his name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. So you see, Mary and Joseph, they go on this, on this journey. They're, they're wedded. They're, she's nine months pregnant now, and she's going through this journey. They go to a political census. They leave their region to go to another region. And on horseback or on a donkey, she makes this, this travel, this travel to go to a political census. And there in the... In, The heat of what was going on, what was happening, God was moving. And so they went to Bethlehem because she's feeling these birth pains, these labor pains. And so they're knocking on every door, knocking on every Hilton, knocking on every every hotel that they could find. And there was no room anywhere. But they found a house, and behind the house is a barn. And the barn had a couple of stables in the back. And that's where they found room where they could give birth to Jesus. So she gives birth, wraps him in swaddling cloths, puts him inside an animal feeding trough. And there was the birth of our Savior. And so as we're looking at this, in a far distant, you know, area, hillside, there's some shepherds. They've been out there who oh, days and days on end smelling like sheep themselves and so you know perspiration sheep they're gathering they're moving sheep they're herding sheep and all of a sudden an appearance of angels go before them angels choirs of angels sing glory to god in the highest and on peace goodwill toward men and this will be a sign unto you when you find him A son, a child wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in an animal feeding trough. So go find him. And so they left everything and went on their way. But as this was going on, in a far distant country, the wise men, they're called magi. Not necessarily three as you would expect, but they're a group of 10 to 12 men. Well-learned men, learned in poetry and literature. And these men were political officials, and so they would map and chart stars. And one night, like every other night as routine, they would look out, but they noticed something unusual, an unusual star. A star that was gleaming really brightly over the area of Israel. And all of a sudden, something triggered in their brain, and it was a prophecy of Balaam, and it's found in the Old Testament. And they recalled this, and we're going to look at it. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. It says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. In other words, there is going to be a birth and he is the eternal king. And once and for all, he will end sin and iniquity. And so many of you don't know that Jesus was the prophesied eternal king. He would be the prophesied man who would come on the scene to be called the king of the Jews, who will once and for all end sin on this planet so everyone can come to faith through him because he is the way. And so, as we see here in Numbers, I want you to write down the next thing prophecy is fulfilled. We hear about prophecy, we hear about foreshadows of the future. It's a real thing, the Bible talks about it. And so, prophecies are actually declared by prophets. If I can tell you what prophets and the roles of prophets are, they're not fortune tellers, they're not palm readers. They don't set up a shop in Brentwood in a house and say, you know, come call me, psychic hotline 1-800, I can tell you. No, it's not that way. Prophets only declare the word of God and the unfolding plan of God. And so as we see here, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. It says here, Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea. During the time when Herod was king, when Jesus was born, some wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, and they asked, where is the baby who was born to be the king of the Jews? And we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And when the king heard about this, he was troubled, as were all the people in Jerusalem. Herod called a meeting of all the leading priests and teachers of the law and asked him where the Christ would be born. And they answered, in the town we see in the town of Bethlehem in Judea, The prophet wrote about this in the scriptures. I believe it's in Micah chapter five, verse two. And they said this, but you Bethlehem in the land of Judah, you're not just an insignificant village in Judah. A ruler will come from you who will be like a shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod had a secret meeting with all the wise men and learned from them the exact time they first saw the star. And he sent the wise men to Bethlehem saying, "Uh, look carefully for the child. and And when you find him, Come tell me so I can worship him too. And so today we're going to see about stars and of men. Stars and of men. Number one, I want you to write down, they saw. They saw. Who saw? The wise men. The magi. These political officials who were learned in poetry, science. They were the first scientists, the first alchemists. There were the ones who were learned in poetry, science, mathematics. And they would be called upon whenever they needed counsel. They would be called upon when a kingdom or a ruler would ask for wisdom and guidance. And so these men, they saw something unusual that night. And they saw this, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea during the time when Herod was king. When Jesus was born, some wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They asked, where is the baby who was to be born, the king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. You see, these are unlike any other men. These were political officials. These were men of stature, men of reputation, men who gathered together and would discuss and have dialogues about prophecies, about literature, poetry. These were men that were called upon on any occasion at at the whim of the king to ask for their wisdom and guidance. And so these men saw an unusual star that evening in the east hovering over Jerusalem and Israel. These men noticed something unusual. And it triggered their memories what they read about. The prophecies of old. Something that they heard in the past and they started to connect the dots. And all of a sudden, number two, they went. Write down, they went. They went for some odd reason with the limited information that they had. It compelled them to pack their bags, get up from their lavish accommodations, their plush environment, to leave the kingdom of what we would consider Iran and Iraq of modern day Babylon and Persia. They would leave that area to go honor a king that they heard about. And so they packed their bags, and we're going to look at this, Matthew chapter 2, verse 9. It says, after the wise men heard the king, they left They left the castle. And the star that they saw the first time in the east went before them until it stopped above the place where the child was. They left their plush accommodations to go on a two-month journey. How would you like that on horseback? Ow. It would be rough in it for many of us. But they went with the political escort, escorted by the police of that time. And so they would make this ruckus. They, it wouldn't be a small group of men. It would be a large company. 10 to 12 men with police escorts riding through, making a two-month journey, finally rolling through Jerusalem. And here Herod, and all of the scholars see this entourage, a large company of people with banners, royal robes, and here they came and heard about a king that would be born. What must have been going on in their heads? With the little information that they had, it would compel them to leave. And my question to you, friend, what is enough for you to hear about Jesus, to actually move from the place of uncertainty to actually follow him. Amen. I want you to write down number three. They were filled with joy. They were filled with joy. Matthew chapter 2, verses 10 through 11 it says, When the wise men saw the star, they were filled with joy. They came to the house where the child was and saw him and his mother. His mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. They opened their gifts and gave him treasures of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What were they thinking? What were they thinking when they saw the star reappear and hover over the area where Jesus was born? They came with all of their political escorts. They came with an entourage. They would follow this star and go to a very humble place, a stable And they would see a child wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a feeding trough made for animals, and to see and identify this is the king of the Jews. And it would compel them not only to rejoice and celebrate, but they would fall to their knees in worship. And they started unloading their bags. And it wasn't Nordstrom bags. It wasn't Macy's bags. It was their luggage. They brought in something with their own hands of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And the scripture says that it would be identified over Jesus, that he's almighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. This was a party to be at. This was the party to roll into. All the invitations were sent, and you know when God throws the angels and gets them involved, you know it's a big deal, right? The invitations went out. There's Mary, there's Joseph, there's the shepherds, there's the wise men. But you see, what was missing on, on the party list was Herod, the scholars, the teachers. It would be like uninviting the professors at Yale, divinity school, Berkeley divinity school, Stanford it would be uninviting them and God would invite these other individuals, it's amazing to me that we could know about the same party and know who's not invited we could hear about the party and see who's uninvited I want you to write down number one, King Herod He was agitated. Something about him inside of him was restless, angry. Angry, agitated, troubled in his spirit. You see, his father, his father had the heart to turn from what he used to know to convert to Judaism. And he would raise his family to learn about Rome and to rise through the ranks of Rome. And so as his father passed on, King Herod came into the picture. He was in the military. He grew up in the ranks of leadership. And all of a sudden, he was greasing palms, paying under the table, doing favors. And now he's in this role and position of being a king, the king of the Jews. And so he was agitated, Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. And it says this, when King Herod heard this, the coming birth of the prophetic king, He was troubled, as were all the people in Israel, in Jerusalem. Friends, this was supposed to be good news. He was troubled. He wasn't excited. He wasn't throwing a party. The entourage of the wise men, the shepherds, everybody knows about this except for King Herod. He couldn't recognize God's voice. He couldn't recognize that God was moving. Instead, he felt threatened of his role and his position. And we know about historically from the historian Josephus, it would, he would, it would be written about King Herod that he was psychotic. He drew himself to madness because he could not get away from being suspicious of other people, suspicious of people playing power moves over his own role and position. So number two, I want you to write down King Herod grew suspicious. It just got under his skin. He would not let it go. It was the topic of conversation. It was the topic of every every interlude, every interaction. He was just suspicious of even his own family. Matthew chapter 2, verses 4 through 5 and 7 and 8. It says this of Herod. Herod called for a meeting of all the leading priests and teachers of the law and asked them where the Christ would be born. And so they answered, in the town of Bethlehem in Judea. I recall the prophet wrote about this in the scriptures. And so they recount Matthew chapter 5 verse 2. I mean, uh, Micah chapter 5 verse 2. And so it continues. Then Herod had another meeting. There's always a meeting after the meeting, right? And so he learned from them the exact time they first saw the star. He sent for the wise men to Bethlehem saying, now look carefully for the child. When you find him, come tell me so I can worship him too. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, liar. Liar. Such a liar. 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 His way of worship, let me explain it to you. It was murder. You see, this was the same Herod that married his first wife, had sons with her, only to banish her to a faraway land, to marry another woman whom he was in love with, had children with her, only to murder her, and then strangle his sons, and that was his life. So his ulterior motive was not so innocent when asking about the birth of Jesus. You see, his thought life was toxic. It was poisonous. He drew himself crazy. He was always suspicious of any power play, power move, any person that would take his role. He was obsessed on the intent of taking anyone out that would just be competition. Notice, friends, something can be learned from here. If you claw your way up on the ladder of success, believe me, someone will claw you on your way out. Number three, I want you to write down. King Herod explodes. He was temperamental, agitated. He did not like to be wrong. He was always in the right. Matthew chapter 2 verse 16 and it expresses this way. When Herod saw that the wise men had tricked him, he was furious. So he gave an order to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem and in the surrounding area who were two years old and younger. And this was keeping with the time that he learned from the wise men. You see, in this backstory, the angels warned Mary and Joseph to move on and go to Egypt so Jesus would not be murdered and accounted for. And then the angels also warned the wise men to go in a different direction and don't go back to Herod to warn him as well. And so Herod learned about this. He felt tricked, he felt robbed. No one was telling him about this party of Jesus, the Messiah, the true king, the eternal one, the Emmanuel, God with us, that he was born. It's, it's interesting to me, people, how low people can go to preserve their role in life. Here, Herod couldn't even recognize God moving Couldn't even recognize God speaking. Couldn't even recognize what God was doing. All he wanted to do and was bent on was to murder the Son of God. This was good news for everyone who was involved that Jesus would be born. That he would absolve sin, give people a second chance, And that goodwill and peace to all men would be available. And yet you have the scribes, the teachers, people of the law, King Herod himself that saw it as terrible news. Same person, polarized expressions, And all God wanted to say was he's still speaking. I'm still moving. And my question to you, friends, in the middle of your diagnosis, are you stonewalling Jesus? In the middle of of your need right now, in this holiday season, are you stretching out your arm and trying to preserve your place in life? When all God wants to say? What he desires to tell us is, I'm still speaking. I'm still moving. Can you see me speaking to you? Can you see me reaching out to you? Can you see me move in your circumstances? And this is where we find the final act of the nativity scene.